No, these renderings do not relate to reality. They relate to the totality of crap online. So that's basically their field of reference, right? Just scrape everything online and that's your new reality and that's the field of reference for statistical renderings. Hi, I'm Kate Brown and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Given the manifold political climate and technological crises unfolding just a few months into 2023, one wonders if that ominous future our species so fears is a lot closer than we anticipated. It's a tense and dramatic time, but it does give me even more conviction about the importance of a cultural figure like Hito Steil. The German filmmaker's bold and illuminating artworks investigate emerging technologies and new media, and she often locates these inquiries within the context of society, politics, globalization, and capitalism. And yet, despite the obvious complexity of the subject matter and her research-intensive process, Steil's works are enthralling, often manifesting as highly ambitious, immersive architectural environments. It's really no small wonder that her work has reached the global stage. Last year, her largest ever retrospective, called I Will Survive, wrapped its European tour at the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam. And just last month, her exhibition called This is the Future opened at the Portland Art Museum, where it's on view until mid-June. To tackle some of the questions about what artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto, and an increasingly imperiled natural world might mean, I can truly think of no better artist to speak with than Steyrl herself. Hi, Hito. Thank you so much for joining me on The Art Angle today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Where am I finding you right now? Are you in Berlin or...? Yep. Just returned to Berlin yesterday. Great. So I'd like to speak to you about your recent exhibition, which just opened at the Portland Art Museum, as well as some other recent works and questions that bloom from them. But first, I wanted to begin with a fundamental term and maybe the most broad one. I understand that you do not readily describe yourself as an artist. Why is that? I mean, I don't mind if someone wants to call me an artist, you know, I'm not going to complain, but this wouldn't be the first description that comes to mind of what I'm doing. So I think that filmmaker is obviously more appropriate. I know that documentary was a foundational genre for you, and your films have obviously very researched and grounded in documentary, and this kind of evolved over the years. So could you speak a little bit about your relationship to filmmaking then as, as a description? Yeah, I mean, that's my foundational practice, and it's never fully gone away. So this is where I start from, also from an intimate relation to film history. And I just don't have the same relation, let's say, to art history. So this is really where I'm coming from. Mm -hmm. And how is it then that your works ended up in the art world, so to speak? I don't know. I mean, yes, I do know. There was no more documentary industry. Well, there was, of course, a documentary industry, but it had turned to travelogues and food porn mainly. So in that sense, if you wanted to do content-based documentary or even socially inclined documentary, the industry just wasn't there. So somehow, I think this was more or less post-Documenta 10 with Catherine David. There was some renewed interest in documentary forms in the art field, and somehow I sort of slipped in with that. 
Hmm. I was thinking in preparing for this interview about the documentary as a form, and I was wondering how your relationship to bringing forward evidence and working with truth when you're also working with elements of poetry and surrealism and sci-fi, but also just how truth functions in the documentary form in 2023, you know, in, in a world where there was so much flattening out of any sense of like a, a single truth to something. Well, you know, I don't think truth is something that can be fully captured by any form of media. Hannah Arendt once said that you could capture moments of truth, which is probably already great if you manage to do that. So this is more or less what I'm hoping to weave in with other elements. But the full truth is never accessible to any documentary rendition because it just doesn't have enough dimensions and perspectives. But of course, you know, there's also the other angle, let's say the fake news angle, which states that nothing at all is true or all things are equally untrue, which is not factual either. You have things which are closer to reality or to things that happened historically, and you things that have nothing to do with it whatsoever, and there's a huge difference between them. Talking about your exhibition that just opened at the Portland Art Museum last week, This is the Future. Yes. Alongside a work by the same name, there's also a video installation called Power Plants. In terms of truth, these are both works that are kind of speculative, and they're presenting sort of technologies that don't exist yet, or at least that is the case right now. I was watching them in Berlin, I think it was in 2019, after they were presented at the Venice Biennial. And this was sort of like a pre-pandemic moment that feels long ago now. But it's interesting that they're being shown again, because there's something really uncanny about the AI that you present in these technologies, especially given that, you know, in the past six months, we've seen, I guess, like five different artificial intelligence bots come forward from mid-journey to chat GPT-3. So I wonder how you are like rereading this work right now. Well, I'm mainly rereading it through the lens of the earthquake in Turkey and Syria because it is a Kurdistan-related work, very clearly so. The story that I'm telling partly takes place in a Turkish prison, and basically everyone who worked on that film has been massively affected by the earthquake right now, so this is how I personally read it. On the other hand, there's maybe a reason why the work is still being shown, even though the technology is outdated. This particular algorithm, which is a next frame prediction algorithm created by a French engineer called Damien Henri, was so difficult to work with. Such a pain in the ass, really, that no one really deployed it. So basically, there isn't a lot of imagery in the art field, or actually none that I really know of, that use this specific visual effect. So it isn't as ubiquitous as, let's say, the Dao-E aesthetic or certain types of style gun aesthetics, which were very much used and are still very much used. In the case of Dao-E to the point of nausea, really, honestly, I think that's a style that's already foreclosed to artists almost because it's just absolutely overused. I think what is also quite 
interesting about the whole phenomenon is the public panic that has sort of ensued, you know, like I know artists like yourself have been thinking about these technologies for a long time. It really does seem though, like in the past two months, like maybe over the holidays, it sort of like became a mainstream concern. I wonder what you make of this sort of public anxiety that has just sort of arrived in the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, it's a great PR move by the big corporations. You know, the more people talk and obsess over it, the more the corporations, of course, profit. For me, these renderings, I call them statistical renderings, they are the NFTs of 2022, right? In 2021, we had NFTs. In 2022, we have the statistical renderings, which basically have the same function. They onboard people into new technological environments. With NFT, people had to learn how to use crypto wallets and ledgers and MetaMask and stuff like that and, you know, learn all this jargon. And this is basically how the NFT worked to onboard people into the industry. And now with the renderings, we have basically the same phenomena. They are onboarding tools into these huge cloud infrastructures that Companies like Microsoft are now rolling out, backed by these large-scale computing facilities like Azure, for example. So basically, companies try to establish some kind of cloud quasi-monopoly over these services and try to draft people to basically buy into their services or become dependent on them, really. And that's the stage we're at. And the renderings are basically the sprinklings <laughs> over the cake of technological dependency. And also it's operating with this myth that it's going to be participatory, you know, like I can just log into chat GPT-3 and feel like I'm being able to participate in the moment. But one wonders how futile this will quickly become when they close the doors again and it's becoming hegemonic and things are just being dictated to us via these technologies. I know you've spoken about this in other instances, like how you think this idea of the public is like shifting through these emergent machines. Well, the public is being captured again. It was already captured in Web 2, within these app silos, basically, or social media, all these filter bubbles. And Web 3, which is now being realized through all these ML applications, will basically create different silos, which are more software-based. So you won't be able to get any edition of the Adobe suit, let's say, which is awful anyway without integrated ML machine learning services, you have to pay extra rent for, right? So basically, you will be forced to subscribe to a lot of different services, which you actually really don't need, but you have to pay for. I think that's the business model, more or less. And have you been exploring them for your own work? Yeah, of course. I mean, I've played around with them, but then I started asking myself more and more, well, what the fuck am I actually doing here? You know, <laughs> do I really want those renderings? Most of them, I mean, they look quite crap, honestly. So what I'm actually doing is I'm thinking a lot about them and trying to describe the images themselves, the beginning of statistics as being rooted in eugenics and the obsession with breeding and the survival of the fittest. And basically, all these renderings originate in this kind of scientific discourse and climate. And I wonder really how basically imagery as such will change when it becomes thoroughly statistical instead of representational, let's say. 
you don't need any more outside input, right? You just need basically all your data, which are somehow organized in a statistical latent space. So how does the relation to reality change? How does the relation to truth change? How are those tools also tied in with a huge infrastructure which produces a lot of carbon emission and actively heats the climate. So all of these are questions I'm trying to think through now. It's interesting to think about a point where there's no more outer world needing to be input into these machines. And just to come back to something you said earlier, because I don't want to glaze over it at all, in talking about the earthquake, it made me think of something you said in an earlier interview about this overemphasis of online. And that the fact is, is that online is not going to be everyone's reality. Could you expand a bit on that? Definitely. I mean, first point relating to the earlier part of your question. No, these renderings do not relate to reality. They relate to the totality of crap online. So that's basically <laughs> their field of reference, right? Just scrape everything <laughs> online and that's your new reality and that's the field of reference for statistical renderings. And then, of course, I've seen in the past months in many different places the reality of power cuts, for example, the fact that we cannot necessarily take energy supply for granted, nor can we take the internet for granted. There is many different situations in which these technologies fail or are blocked, for example, by autocracies in riots and so on and so on or by the fact that there is devastation of some kind. So basically, all these things that people take for granted really are unstable and precarious. And reality in which internet is not accessible is already here, even in quite mundane situations. You can't imagine how many times conversations with people, for example, in the US failed because there had been a weather event and the internet had gone down, right? So there's so and so many reasons why the digital environment, we are all being trained to take for granted as our immediate reality is suddenly no longer available. Looking at the idea of blocking technologies, there's been quite a few articles coming up about artists actually blocking their work from going on to these technologies. Is that something that you have also done? Are thinking about doing so that AI can't use your work? Oh, it's too late. <laughs> also, frankly, I don't really care that much. So if anyone wants to automate me, just go ahead. Why not? You know, I'm not that much concerned. But I mean, I do understand that for many artists, especially graphic artists, illustrators, and so on, this is a much more serious question. And I really do understand the concerns of these people. Well, you know that there have been already opt-out options demanded by artists, for example, Holly Hunt and Matt Dryhurst have done an excellent job in pushing that angle. But I think that the existence of all these stolen data, which are assembled to create the large-scale data sets, is something that could more interestingly be thought through in common, right? How if artists agreed to basically pull those data and to run them in common as a cooperative form or as a data commons or as a data trust, right? Thus not trying to gain control over your individual IP 
necessarily primarily, but trying to see whether there's any way to handle these large-scale agglomerations of data in a more collective way. That brings me to, and I could be completely bringing together two things that don't actually relate, but I know that you have done a lot of work with decentralized autonomous organizations. Is there some work to be done on the blockchain that can somehow allow for there to be more data trusts? Maybe you can just sort of unpack it a little bit more for those of us who are not too fluent. Yes. So I've done some work around, let's say, the narratives of the blockchain. But for that, the blockchain is completely unnecessary. Mm. In fact, I think the blockchain is unnecessary for most things, truly, <laughs> honestly. But the narratives that it has created are in some cases interesting. For example, if you have something in common, whether it's data or tokens or something else, how do you govern this? What kind of rules do you create? And the existing DAOs until now have had very different answers to that. And most of them just had a discourse where someone made a decision once they felt like it. But the decision-making protocols are really interesting to explore and also to test before actually deploying them. So that has been fascinating to me. But honestly, you do not need any computer for that. <laughs> and anything that is not working off the blockchain will probably not work on the blockchain either. So the idea that technology can solve any kind of problems between humans is exaggerated. Mm. They need to be solved, you know, between humans first. That's actually quite an empowering statement because I think a lot of people feel disempowered by their lack of fluency. I mean, the landscape is shifting so incredibly quickly. Yeah, that's the case for the blockchain. In the case of, you know, this new onslaught of automation, which is actually what happens with the so-called AI and machine learning. It's just the next accelerated phase of automation. Of course, I think people would be wise to look at what's happening, not necessarily in the sense of, you know, playing around with DALL-E. That's not going to help, right? <laughs> but trying to comprehend all these seismic social changes that are underway. In terms of the reorganization of labor, for example. You just said so-called artificial intelligence. I believe you once referred to it as artificial stupidity, Yeah, actually, right? Yeah, yeah. most definitely not intelligent. I mean, I don't know what that even means. Artificial stupidity exists, though. I'm very confident. I feel like I encounter it daily. Actually. Exactly, yeah. It's widespread. Totally. To just stay on the crypto topic a little bit more, you did something quite interesting. I think it was in 2022. You squatted the Ethereum domain of a German institution. I think that didn't get picked up enough by international media, but it's incredibly fascinating. Can you explain what was attempted there by your coup? Yeah, I NFT'd a lot of institutions. Actually, all of them, not only this German one, but Venice Biennial is fully under my control, for example, etc., etc. So I was just trying to basically demonstrate that this claim to property, which the NFT attempts, is a story, right? I mean, you can NFT anything and pretend that you own it. I mean, you can try 
And in the case of digital files, some people will believe you. But this is one part of it. The other part of it was, okay, now we own this thing. Now what do we do? And that's actually also more interesting. You know, how do you play test, but also implement or even prompt the development of other structures within institutions? It's interesting that institutions did not think about this themselves, like what their roles are <laughs> in the blockchain. It shows a little bit just how perhaps one could say behind the times they are. And I know that institutions have been facing a lot of challenges on this front. Yeah, I mean, institutions are definitely facing a lot of challenges. No one is going to deny that. But in relation to the blockchain, and especially at the NFT moment, I think institutions were more interested in throwing out NFTs of basically everything of their own IP, intellectual property, so to speak, than thinking through the technology and what it could mean also in relation to their own structure, right? And signing up for TikToks instead of thinking about reformatting themselves more profoundly. Yes. Yeah, there will always be this tension, I'm sure. <laughs> and yet I have the sense that you, you know, are not a person who wants to tear down institutions. You're more interested in demanding them to be responsible and accountable. Yes, because that's also interesting. We have seen a lot of these basically newly formed, almost temporary institutions also in the blockchain space. And you have the feeling that many of them are not going to last, right? Because it takes a lot of time and experience and history to make this thing work. And of course, I mean, institutions are usually doing a terrible job running after donors and trying to cut corners, basically, in terms of public accountability. But on the other hand, they also sometimes do quite a good job at at least safeguarding some kind of cultural memory and also artworks. This job could be done better in many cases and much better. And actually, to be fair, institutions have started improving their idea of what art history is, of what cultural memories. They have been doing this a lot during the past 10 years. So maybe I should also acknowledge that, that on this front, institutions have been trying quite hard in the last decade. Part of that effort towards progress has also been cleaning house, as you mentioned, you know, with patrons. And I know you've had some strong opinions about that. Maybe to go to the institution and talk about the art industry more widely. I think it was in 2017, you found out that one of your works had ended up in a free port. Was that a real sort of catalyst? And ever since then, you have been demanding more transparency about where your work lands up, whether it's an institution or whose name's on the door, basically. Well, I don't know if that was really the catalyst or not. But as I said in the beginning, I was trained in the film industry. Now there's a lot of things going very wrong in the film industry too, but they are not as dependent, you know, on corporate donors to that extent. So in that sense, I was quite naive entering the art world. And also I didn't have anything to do with the art market for a very, very long time. So all these insights came much later. A rude awakening of sorts. Well, you know, I mean, it was also interesting to see <laughs> what was going on, but mm. also a bit unexpected in some places. 
I think that's quite unique. I'm not sure how many artists, and if I'm understanding this correctly, will you know do some sort of background checks on the people that might be buying their work because it, you know, I think it is something that's important. Can you explain a bit about how that works for you as an artist? What's involved? I guess we are doing a lousy job at it and we are failing all the time also. I mean, I'm not a detective. I'm not the police either, right? I'm just trying to see if potential buyers are involved in any sort of very obvious nefarious activities. Sometimes that's really the case and mostly it isn't or we just don't know about it. <laughs> yeah, mm. that's maybe it. I once I read a very funny interview in a South Korean magazine about one lady who had bought my work and said she approached the gallery with the question, could she maybe buy my work? And then she was told, can you prove that you're not a weapons dealer? <laughs> then she started laughing and said, no, no, I'm not a weapons dealer. Yeah, sometimes it can also be a bit rude. I'm afraid I apologize. I mean, it seems like a very legitimate question, especially, you know, because the art industry operates under the auspices of being this sort of place of social justice and progress. So it is too painfully, poignantly ironic. Mm. Yeah, in many cases, but also tragic sometimes. Mm. When I was rereading this, the fact of you trying to chase your work back from a free port, I was thinking about how the borderlessness of blockchain is actually not a new idea. If anything, it was invented in the art world with Freeports. Yeah, absolutely. It already exists. And the Freeports now have spread everywhere. That's funny, you know, it's no longer concentrated in a few places like Switzerland and Luxembourg, but they are now everywhere. In London, for example, also many places in the US have Freeported themselves. So this landscape is now much more dispersed and everywhere. Of course, nefarious money is one thing, but there's also statements that are made and more kind of cultural elements. And I was thinking about the past year, much of the headlines around you have been dominated by some of the withdrawals that you've made. The cancellation of the Hugo Ball Prize, the withdrawal of Factory of the Sun, where I think you had to buy it back from collector Julia Stoschek. And then, of course, there was your decision to pull out of Documenta 15. I mean, I understand that these are distinct events, but maybe you can speak a bit about if there was a shift in your thinking that led to them. No, I don't think there was any shift. I think some situations just escalated. Okay, that's not the case with the Hugo Ball Prize. In that case, I was just very, very surprised to find strongly anti-Semitic passages in his writing, which I really hadn't known about. As I said, I'm not an art historian and not a literature historian either, so I just didn't know about it. So I made the decision to just throw my uncertainty in the open, basically, and say, okay, let's discuss this. I don't know what to do. I mean, what do you do? It's a very tricky case. So that's basically what the people involved including the city that has mandated the prize, is that how you say it, is giving out this award. We are now all involved in this process of trying to work through this complication. And I think that in a way, it's probably nothing out of the ordinary 
I don't know. I, I don't get that many prices, right? But I think that probably a lot of the people who are namesakes of big art prices might have similar histories. Who knows? Just to voice the sort of devil's advocate position, there's this sort of pushback against this sort of cleaning of house that has been happening in recent years, which I think is a good thing to say, like, do people not want patrons anymore? Like, do they not understand that art requires money to sort of run? I wonder what you think about that argument and what you would say to it. Just to come back to the Hugo Ball thing once more very sure. briefly, you know, I'm not trying to cancel this person. I'm just trying to discuss it in the open. I'm not trying to do away with it or pretend it doesn't exist or quickly distance myself from it. No, no, on the contrary, just stay with the complication. I don't think it can be resolved, honestly. So that's the approach. And in terms of the money question, I mean, my observation is that in the art world, quite a lot of money is being spent on basically entertaining donors or trying to get museums up to some kind of imaginary scale. They have to be bigger and grander and are involved in some kind of fictitious competition, which I don't really see the rationale of, right? Why does every museum need a huge extension suddenly? Is there really a reason? Is the reason really art? Question mark? I don't think so. Because at the same time, the budgets for actually having shows or producing art are constantly being reduced and shrinking, right? So what's the point of having to raise so much money to build huge new empty wings of museums? And is this what the donors are actually for? In this case, can we just not do it and maybe focus on the art and the production of the art and not the reception for the donors? I think we can ask questions, what is this money being spent for? And does this really benefit art or does this benefit the reputation economy of the donors. Mm. And of course, to move that into the sort of geopolitical space as well, I was thinking about that a lot after the war broke out in Ukraine. I mean, there was this myth of diplomacy through art yeah. that was happening so much, I noticed, in the European art scene in those years. Yeah. What do you think about, again, it's not about cancellation, as you said, but voicing uncertainty towards an entire government? Have you ever done that? Or do you think that that's viable? Well, you know, I mean, I haven't exhibited in Russia for, I don't know, probably the last time in 2011. There's just reasons where one decides that there is no point in trying. On the contrary, your work would just get used to pretend a place is more liberal than it really is. I don't think there is any sort of blanket algorithm to apply to that. It's situational and just depends. Just thinking about this idea of bringing forward an uncertainty as opposed to trying to cancel something is yes. to me a very important distinction. Yeah. And you've made it here. I wonder if it troubles you that your gestures could ever be read as cancellation. I imagine the term doesn't sit well with you. No, <laughs> it doesn't. But who have I been canceling? I wouldn't really know an example for that. No, I was just thinking that it's not really that you have been doing that. It's just that it gets pulled into these mass narratives. One would worry. Perhaps not. Well, you know, I mean, I don't have every aspect of the story under control. That's part of it. So what can I do if it's being misread? There's not much I can do. Mm. 
I mean, sometimes also a withdrawal is less than a cancellation than, let's say, appeal to finally do something, no? Sometimes it's the only tool one has, literally. Just to pivot a bit, I was noticing when I was looking back at your practice that your work, even though it is often about new media technology and using it, is always grounded in a physical space of an installation. And I was wondering if you are at all planning or thinking about moving into a purely virtual artistic project at some point in the future? I wouldn't exclude it. I mean, I have done VR pieces already. We have done web-based things, simulations, etc. But for now, the audience's appetite is just not there. No one wants it. And then why should I go there? <laughs> There's really no reason. So for now, the metaverse idea completely failed, I think. So why should I do it? I'm not going to find any audience there. It's empty. Are you hopeful that it will become full in some way? No, I'm not hopeful. I think if the metaverse existed, it would be dominated by Mark Zuckerberg. And I'm not keen on that idea. And so in that sense, I'm almost very happy that it's not happening now. Because if it were to make any sense, then there would have to be a sort of federated world of, you know, different metaverses almost communicating with one another, but also interchangeable. That would perhaps make sense, but definitely not to start working in another enclosed filter bubble monopoly. That is largely just extracting data points from people, right? Yeah, that, but also selling their own proprietary technology, which one has to conform to. I mean, most VR glasses. Now, in order to use them, you need to have a Facebook account. So what do you do if you don't want one? I haven't been on this kind of social media for many years now, and I'm definitely not going back, <laughs> metaverse or not. <laughs> Earlier, you mentioned that you have a daughter, and I know, of course, you're teaching at Udaka. So I imagine you're around a lot of young people. And I wonder what you think about the next generation and how they are going to be interacting with the metaverse, but also just with social media in general. You know, I was just reading today about this new movement called de influencing. There is just so much promotion of consumer culture that it's almost like flatline to the point that people are growing tired of being told to buy things, which is quite an interesting reversal. Yeah, it's an interesting reversal, but there's also another reversal in that basically all forms of corporate social media except TikTok are now flatlining or regressing or even completely disintegrating like Twitter. I mean, the peak social media moment did happen. It's going down, maybe slowly, but I don't think that young people are not going to sign up to Instagram. And that's quite different from five years ago. I mean, teenagers. So that's done for them. Mm. And uh, TikTok is another beast and another problem and another can of worms, etc. Also because no one knows what really happens with the data. But other than that, I think there's an exodus into other forms like discords, for example, or even WhatsApp groups or Mastodon, for that matter, that are not tied to these traditional corporate media anymore. I wonder what you think that means for the commons, though, if everyone's just siphoning off into their little silos, so to speak. 
Well, I mean, Mastodon is very interesting for the idea of commons because it is this federated open source universe, which is quite lively right now and which I'm very much enjoying. It has a lot of problems too. I mean, I won't deny that, but I feel that for many, many years, there is this spirit of non-for-profit digital media, which I have been missing, you know, almost since 2005 or something. That's positive. I wanted to ask you about power plants again in relation to animal spirits, which was the work that I know didn't premiere at Documenta, but was on view at Documenta. I was thinking about these two works in tandem because they're both, I think, one of the prominent examples of you foregrounding nature as a subject matter. Given the climate crisis and the energy crisis in Europe, is that somehow folding into the concern and is that what's sort of bringing them forward as protagonists? Definitely. Absolutely. But also in both cases, the relationship of nature to technology, right? What kind of interaction can one think of that's not also governed by humans, for example? <laughs> I have this fictional device in Animal Spirits whereby James Bridle invents a device where animals and machine learning tools can talk to one another directly without the interference of humans, for example. So, I mean, there's a lot of things to think about in that respect. Also the connection of the rural to technology. It's much more strong than people want to think. You know, it's not this place that's stuck in the Middle Ages, far from it. On the contrary, now that's more of a dystopic thing, but agriculture is now getting permeated by machine learning tools also sensors on farms trying to pick the most efficient crop, etc., etc. So there's a lot happening also on that level. Is it something to be optimistic about? No, <laughs> not at all. I think that will mainly profit the agriculture industry who are trying to estimate which one of their genetically manipulated crops produces the biggest yield, etc. I was just thinking about in power plants, it presents this idea that there are plants that can cure, you'll probably say it better, but like political biases. Is that right? Yeah. Could you expand a bit on that? Yeah, it's a garden that is projected into the future by Heja, the protagonist, who is inmate in a Turkish prison. And the guards try to destroy her prison garden. And so she hides it in the future. And the garden consists of all these plants, which have political effects, like you can poison autocrats with them, for example, or you can learn how to do nothing from them. <laughs> that is seen as something very beneficial and healthy. I really like this idea of a digitally based rewilding, so to speak. It gives me some sort of hope. <laughs> mm. What are you working on at the moment and what is up next for you? Next is a show at Estashipa where we will show animal spirits. And this time I would like to tie this with an earthquake relief effort by working with a community garden here in Berlin that has ties to the region and trying to raise money to basically keep helping because I think this will be a situation that will take many years to resolve. I mean, it's not because People stop hearing about it in the news. 
that the hardship goes away. So I think it will be important to try to stay with that for quite some period. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not just a natural disaster. It's a political one, and it was fueled by politics. Yes, yes on many different levels. Mm-hmm. Yes. When is that show opening? That's opening at the end of April. Okay, wonderful. Yes. Thank you so much, Hito. It was a pleasure to speak with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Carolyn Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.